Hi everyone, I'm Debbie from Property Apprentice. We're introducing a new series called The Week in Review where I'm going to talk about current events for the everyday investor and home buyer. So today's first topic, we're going to talk about investors being back in the market with bigger mortgages. And uh, one of the sources for this was an article that was published on landlords.co.nz. So uh, latest Reserve Bank of New Zealand data, it shows that in February there was a total of $5,706 billion that was lent to all borrowers. That's just in February. So of that, 18.6% was to investors, which continues the increasing trend from December when it was 16.6% and January when it was 17.4%. Okay, so increasing, increasing. Now, first home buyers made up 16.7% of total borrowing in February, and that's down from 17.5% in January following the peak in December. And other owner-occupied lenders also declined a little bit from 64% in January down to 63.6% in February. The interesting part about this is that the figures also show that the total value of lending was down by $1.9 billion. That's 24.9% from this time last year. The total value is about the same as what it was in 2020, but there were less loans in total. So what that means is that there's fewer people borrowing, but they're taking out bigger mortgages. I mean, no huge surprises there, right? House prices have been rising much faster than people can save. But why the sudden change? Clearly, it's first home buyers that are, um, the numbers have dropped the most with. So let's have a look at why that's the case. First of all, the Reserve Bank changed the rules for low deposit lending from the 1st of November last year. So that reduced the percentage of loans that banks were allowed to lend to home buyers who needed to borrow above 80%. It reduced it from down to 10% of all new loans instead of 20%. So it dramatically reduced the amount of first home buyers who were able to get lending with less than 20% deposit. As house prices had been increasing at a rapid rate up until that point, there were more and more first-time buyers who had less than 20% deposit. Once their pre-approvals expired, they were effectively out of the market until they're able to either increase their deposit or find a bank who's got the capacity to lend to them. Then on the 1st of December, the amendments to the Triple CFA came into effect. So that's the Credit Contracts and Consumer Finance Act. And that had the perverse effect of penalising first home buyers who were saving for their house deposit because the banks had to include their regular savings as an expense, which is crazy, even though especially, obviously, once they bought their home, they'd no longer need to keep saving for that deposit to purchase it. So a little bit crazy. Now, the triple CFA also affected the ability for other home buyers and investors to obtain lending. But we've seen the percentage of investors who've been getting lending has continued to increase instead of decrease. So why is that? One reason is that as soon as the media starts to report on property values stabilizing or falling, it tends to be the first home buyers who freak out and step back from the market first. Whereas experienced investors, this is the time that they step forward. 
Like I've been saying for a few months now, seasoned investors prefer a buyer's market over a booming property market because there's less frenzy in the property market, less competition from other buyers. You know, so many experienced investors haven't been actively buying property over the past few years because it was difficult to make the numbers work. Now they're getting back into it because they recognize the fact that a slower property market creates opportunities that a booming property market doesn't. So if you're a first home buyer or if you're new to investing, perhaps it's worth considering that this is actually not the time to be sitting on the sidelines waiting or hoping that values are going to drop because what if they don't? Perhaps it's worth considering that now's the time to negotiate harder to achieve your goals with property. You know, if you don't know how to negotiate or if you don't feel confident negotiating on a property, you really need to learn because it can literally save you tens of thousands of dollars in a buyer's market. The triple CFA rules are expected to relax a little bit sometime around June this year. So this window of opportunity where we've got less buyers in the market, that might not last too much longer. Okay, so if you're in a position that you can get lending now, as long as you're buying the right sort of property for your financial position, it's a pretty good time to be out there looking for property. Second topic that I wanted to talk about is um, record high number of building consents combined with material shortages. Okay, so this was an article that was published in News Hub. And uh, it was all about the statistics that have just recently been released from Statistics New Zealand. So Stats New Zealand data showed there were nearly 4,200 building consents granted in February with a record high 50,000 50, building consents granted in the previous 12 months. Auckland had the highest number of consents in February with 20,786 issued, which is an increase of 22% since February last year. That's significant. Canterbury was next with 8,317 consents issued, and that's an increase of 42% from the same time last year. Wellington's up by 24% with 3,687 consents issued. They're all new record levels. The problem is that we've got major supply chain issues causing a shortage in building materials, which is pushing prices up and delaying timeframes for those builds to be completed. There's not exactly an oversupply of available tradies either, let's face it. So that's increasing labour costs and further limiting the speed that these new dwellings can be built. There's a lot of consent still in the pipeline as well. So even if new consents start to drop off, the pressure is still going to be, be there for quite some time yet. Prices could continue to be on the increase for a while yet, but just be careful. Like this is the stage in the property cycle where banks are going to start getting nervous about lending for new developments. Many lenders already have pulled back on their lending for this, and especially with new developers. Developers can and will go broke. So if you're looking to purchase a new build, do your homework on the developer, get your lawyer to check the contract before you sign it, and get a good mortgage advisor. Pre-approvals have got a limited shelf life. So if it's a turnkey finance deal, for example, that's one of the ones where you put down like a 5% deposit and then pay the balance on completion. 
If completion date isn't expected to be within the next three to six months, you might find yourself in trouble when it comes to getting the mortgage to settle that property. So just be really careful, tread carefully moving forward with those. So if you want to learn more about some of the stuff that I've talked about, join us on one of our free Beginner's Guide to Property Investment events that we hold online or in person. You can check that out for upcoming dates on our website, which is propertyapprentice.co.nz and register today for one of our upcoming events. Now, topic number three, we've got core logic data that's revealing a power shift to buyers as the housing market weakens. Now, we've been talking about this for a few months now, but according to CoreLogic's house price index for March, each of the main centres recorded either a reduction in the rate of growth of housing, housing values or an outright decline in values compared to February. Barfoot and Thompson statistics showed that the March sales were down a third from last month, but the number of listings has increased to the highest number in nearly three years. Median sale prices were showing resilience, though. So it's important to remember that even though averages and medians might show a drop or a rise, or a flattening, it's not really reflective of what every single house value is doing. Some houses will sell below market value in a buyer's market. Others will sell above market value. And at the end of the day, it's gonna depend on how motivated the vendor of a particular property is to sell their house and how many buyers are interested in that particular property as well. Properties are gonna start staying on the market for longer and vendor expectations are starting to get more realistic as well. So that's always gotta be good news for buyers, but it doesn't mean that all house values are gonna drop because not everyone needs to sell. Some houses are just gonna sit on the market for longer until a buyer falls in love with it and is prepared to pay what the owner wants for it. Otherwise, the owner will take it off the market and wait until there's more buyers fighting for every listing again. Fourth topic for today's weekly roundup is Airbnb slams Christchurch's new house sharing rules as the most restrictive in Australasia. So the Christchurch City Council has, um, has plans in place to place new rules on people renting out their homes to short-term visitors. So new rules governing the Airbnb-style accommodation in Christchurch, um, they've been described, like I said, as the most restrictive and outdated home-sharing laws in the whole of Australasia, but others say the rules don't go far enough. People who want to rent out properties as unhosted visitor accommodation like Airbnb in residential areas are now going to have to obtain a resource consent, which will cost at least $1,000, but they won't expire. Under the new rules, a consent will be needed for homes that are rented out for less than 60 nights a year for a maximum of six guests. The council won't decline that application, but it can put conditions on the consent, and that's going to cost about a thousand bucks. If a property is being rented out for more than 60 nights a year with up to 12 guests, it'll be classed as discretionary activity. Again, a consent is going to be needed, but the council can consider the impacts on neighbours, including noise and traffic movements, before deciding whether or not to grant or decline that consent. So um, the council head of planning and consent, John Higgins, 
said that the fees to process a discretionary activity consent without notification to neighbours or the wider public could range from anywhere from $1,500 up to $4,000. I mean, wow, you know, like where do I start with this one? <laughs> Seems to be a great way for the Christchurch Council to increase its spending budget, but potentially not great for tourism in the area. If you're looking at operating short-term rental accommodation as a strategy, make sure you get good tax advice because I suspect that if one council does this, there's bound to be more councils to follow. In order to make it a financially viable strategy, you're probably going to need to really operate it as a business, but there can be GST issued, issues associated with doing that. So it's not necessarily going to be as straightforward or simple as a lot of people might think, and it might not be as straightforward as it has previously been, although the GST issues have always been there. Okay, so just get good advice from an accountant around that, an accountant who specializes in property. Last but not least, we're going to talk about DIY landlords who look like they're going to escape the regulations noose. So, you know, what we've seen recently is that um, the government has been looking at legislating property management and it looks as if private landlords are not going to be included in this new legislation, despite intense lobbying from the sector. So at a recent Housing and Urban Development Ministry, um, that's like HUD workshops, um, they've been lobbying the government to include private, private landlords. Senior officials have said it's not in their remit to recommend that. So um, yeah, <laughs> about 59% of the country's private rental properties are actually under property management, like professional property management. So that's a, a fairly large percentage that's left where private landlords are still managing those properties. So that number of properties that are being managed professionally has increased. Uh, back at the beginning of 2020, it was about 49%. So there's been a 10% increase over the last couple of years. But there's been, a, and there's been that significant swing since the government legislation was introduced, um, which amended the Tenancy Act and also introdu introduction of the Healthy Home Standards. My personal thought on leaving out private landlords from this regulation is that it's just another kick in the teeth for tenants. You know, if the government's going to regulate property management, it should be across the board, including private landlords. Otherwise, it's just giving potential slumlords another chance to continue doing what they've been doing, which is to take advantage of people in less fortunate positions than themselves by providing subpar housing for above market rent. People like that give property investors a really bad name you know, and we don't need that. Uh, so although not all private landlords are slumlords, and in fact, far from it, regulation across the board would almost certainly improve the lives of many tenants because a lot of the private landlords aren't aware of all of the new regulations. You know, a lot of private landlords are accidental landlords. They didn't purchase that property with the intention of it being a rental. So, you know, they just might not be aware of all of the rules and regulations required. Now, all of the good property managers that we know have been asking for this sort of regulation of the industry for years. They're not scared of it. Uh, my personal opinion, 
is that good property management's a pretty thankless task and it's one that you couldn't pay me enough to do, especially with all the new regulations in place. I would much rather pay a professional to do it for me and good property managers are worth their weight in gold. However, there are many property investors who choose to manage their own properties themselves and they should be entitled to do that. I just think that if you're going to manage your own rentals, you need to treat it like a business and ensure that you're complying with all the new rules and regulations. So in my opinion, private landlords should be held to the same standard that any professional property manager would be. All right, so that wraps up this week in review. Um, hope you enjoyed this. Uh, let us know if you've got any suggestions for future podcast topics. And uh, we'll see you again next week with another review of what happens in the next week. Thanks for listening.